0: Hello and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Wirth, your host, a registered dietitian here in New Haven, Connecticut. And this is the last episode of 2019, everyone. It is almost 2020. I can't believe that. I still somehow think it's 2010 and always base things off of 2010, but I'm going to have to start adding. 10 years to every estimate of how long ago things were. So um, here's to that in, in the next year. But it's been a crazy year. 2019 has been jam-packed for me. I started this podcast. I got to connect with all of you who are listening. I started my private practice um, Worth Your Wild Nutrition. If anyone is in the New Haven area, you can always check me out if you want to work with me in the practice. Um, and I am officially More than two years, two full calendar years, uh, symptom free of my own eating disorder. So that is um, a great way to feel going into the next decade. For all of you out there, I want to know where you're at. You know, how was 2019 for you? What was your recovery like in 2019? Or what was your eating disorder like in 2019? What's going on for you? What questions do you have? What kind of guests do you want to hear from in the new year? Please let me know if there's any specific type of guest or specific person you would like to hear from. And also let me know if you have any questions. We are doing that Q&A episode. It is coming closer and closer. So please, I've gotten some, but send your questions along. The article of the week this week actually was submitted by a listener just as it was um, last week. This article was published in August, um, but I didn't see it, uh, until the listener sent it to me. And I think it is incredibly important to talk about in a subject that really cannot, um, get enough coverage. The title is Who's Considered Thin Enough for Eating Disorder Treatment. It's on the Elemental, um, blog on Medium, and it really goes into a lot of detail about the problems, um, that having a weight classification for any disease, but in this case, for eating disorders can cause. Um, I experienced it myself as someone who is a little bit larger than your typical eating disorder patient. I wasn't asked questions that I would have been if I had been in a like somewhat smaller body um or, you know, looked to the part of a typical eating disorder patient. And I don't even want to use that word typical because, what we think of as typical, the stereotype really isn't. So um, yeah, I don't look like the stereotype, but I do probably look like more the typical eating disorder patient. And um, a lot of health professionals have not caught up uh, and are not asking the right questions and are not giving the right um, concern to individuals who may not fit the underweight uh, sort of idea of an eating disorder. So I'm just going to read part of this uh, blog or article because it is really, really great. And you should all go check it out. It's a wonderful, um, kind of heartbreaking, but really important read. So it starts, um, I'm starting like midway down. As a culture, we tend to think that eating disorders don't happen to people in bigger bodies, or if they do, those patients can't be as physiologically sick as their thinner counterparts. This isn't true. You don't have to be emaciated to be very sick from your eating disorder, says Janelle Messinger, PhD and associate research professor of biostatistics at Drexel University, who studies how to improve eating disorder treatment and prevention programs. Messenger's data emphasizes that body mass index, BMI, does not correlate particularly well with a patient's symptom severity, and when it does, the relationship is the opposite of what we expect. We're seeing people in higher weight bodies actually being more symptomatic in terms of eating disorders uh, behaviors by the time they enter treatment compared with lower weight patients. She explains noting that this is likely due both to these patients' higher level of weight suppression, calculated by subtracting a patient's current weight from their highest ever weight and the stigma they experience for being in a bigger body in the first place. So basically what she's saying is that, you know, when someone enters a treatment center, those in bigger bodies often have more of the symptoms associated with anorexia or bulimia or whatever they are suffering from because they haven't been noticed or given any care um, when they were, you know, just having some of the more minor or just fewer symptoms. Um, the The main character in this article is Rose, who has an eating disorder. And um, she talks about her struggles and why, you know, she hasn't been getting the treatment that she really deserves. So I think you should all go check this out. It is a really great look at atypical anorexia nervosa that is the the newest um, addition to anorexia nervosa that takes out the weight classification. Um, And if we were to just look at atypical anorexia as the category, more than 2%, like 2.8% of the population could be diagnosed with it. So it's a really important read. I suggest you go check it out. It's in the notes um, in the description for this podcast. So without any further ado, I want to wish you a happy new year, a wonderful start to 2020. And I also want you to get ready to listen to Jennifer McGurk. She's a dietician. She is my guest on this podcast. I am so happy to have her here. I first met her at the WIND, the Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics Conference in February of 2019, um, where she was speaking about her practice as an eating disorder dietitian and incorporating intuitive eating. And for me, that was sort of a concept I'd never thought about. It was intuitive eating in one box and eating disorder recovery in the other box. And I wasn't sure how you got someone from an eating disorder to intuitive eating that smoothly. It always seems like a super rocky process, and it it is a rocky process. It is a struggle, but Jennifer has great tips on how you can do that as a practitioner and as an individual, how you can start thinking about intuitive eating. So without any further ado, here is Jennifer McGurk, the owner of Eat With Knowledge, a private practice in Nyack, New York, and pursuing private practice, uh, which helps professionals get their private practice off the ground. So here we go. Hi, Julia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. It's fun to talk to you yes. again.
1: I know. No, it really is.
0: Yeah. So, how did you get interested in nutrition?
1: Yeah. So, this is a great story, and I feel like it's a very common story that people go through is that I was dealing with my own eating disorder, my own disordered eating in high school. You know, my story began with wanting to lose weight as is very common for a lot of people. Right. Um, But yeah, yeah. But what happened was I became, you know, kind of unhealthy, obsessed with nutrition Mm -hmm. and I really wanted to find answers and I wanted to feel better about myself. So I said, you know, I'm going to major in nutrition. Right, because that's going to help me, <laughs> which a lot of people I feel like go through if they have a personal history and eating disorder. Um, but I have to say my um, turn into college, like my experience going into Penn State as a nutrition major was actually, in a sense, helpful at the beginning, at least, because I was coming from a diet mentality, doing like a diet program that was really restrictive.
0: Right, And
1: my first class at Was all about like food groups and serving sizes. And when you think about like the USDA standard, you know, quote unquote, I have to quotes like standard portion sizes and stuff, it was more food than what I was eating. So it did give me a little bit more permission to eat. That's awesome. fuel my body that way, which was helpful. But, you know, it really wasn't true eating before the recovery by any means.
0: Right. True. And, and so you're at school and uh, when did you find intuitive eating? So you're, you're learning about nutrition, but when did you find out about intuitive eating?
1: Yeah. So Unfortunately, I don't think my story is uncommon, but I struggled throughout all college. I had a good and in the first part of my career as a registered dietitian with my own eating disorder. And I found intuitive eating. I'll never forget. It was like, <laughs> like six months after I had found, or after I started my first job at a diabetes center.
0: Okay. And one of my
1: friends recommended the book, Intuitive Eating, and she said, This book really was a different way of thinking about nutrition, and I really liked it. So I remember I bought it, you know, at the time. Yeah. $15 on a book it was like absurd, even though my New York City rent book was to like $1,000 <laughs> a month, thinking back on priorities. It's a little crazy. Yeah. But I bought, you know, the Intuitive Eating book, and I read it. And that's what got me into my eating disorder treatment because I basically read the book and I said, I really want to practice this, but I don't know how. Yeah, And I have so many different things going on in my life that are making this impossible, like my own anxiety, my own stress, my own stuff that was just preventing me from being an intuitive eater. And I said, I need to go to therapy. Like, right. I've never been to therapy before, but I need to go to therapy. And that's how I started my eating disorder treatment.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think that's that sounds really common in terms of, Patients that I see now who are like, I know I should be doing that, but I have like no idea how to even get there. <laughs> I think like there's something yeah. get blocking me.
1: Yeah, no, and I'm so thankful that I had the experience that I had struggling with my own eating disorder looking back, even though at the time it was a really painful time. I like it wasn't right, was so that needed, but it gave me so much more empathy, compassion, and just like the ability to connect with clients in a different way like if I hadn't I'd have gone through that. So definitely I'm thankful that I found intuitive meeting when I found it. I'm almost thankful for the struggle, although that sounds really weird but I'm thankful for the ability to be resilient and I think in my own Minnesota recovery, it taught me so much not only about me but about life and about relationships and connections and you know what I value and what I want to do. That I'm so thankful for the help and so thankful for intuitive eating because it really did change my life.
0: Yeah, I think that's great to hear because so many times people are like, oh, you shouldn't share that you had, you know, an eating disorder or any other issue or share like your personal life. But I do think it is helpful. To know that you know I have been in the same seat as the person I'm talking to.
1: Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think that there is a compassion and an empathy that you cannot teach somebody.
0: No, However, not.
1: I don't think that you have to struggle to have it. I think that there's some people out there that just automatically have it, and even even if they don't go through it, and even for it, sure they automatically have it, and it's just something that they have. But I would like to say you can teach anyone any education that you want, but you can't necessarily teach someone empathy.
0: Right, definitely. So now as a practitioner, uh, you work mostly with clients with eating disorders. Am I correct?
1: Yes, yes. Well, my practice, my story is actually pretty cool <laughs> in a sense where my solo private practice started out as just me. But as I got myself into different projects, like mm-hmm. my, you know, other business for private practice, I've had to take on other dietitians. Right. So yeah. we do have a group practice now, which is great. I love it so much because I love supervising other dietitians and I love, you know, helping even more clients, um, which is awesome. But we are now growing and the three of us have different specialties kind of within intuitive eating, although we're all really eating disorder professionals we believe in eating disorder recovery we work a lot with families kids,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all we you know see a lot of different people but there's also certain like different niches within eating disorder recovery and intuitive eating that i think are really cool so one of my associates really loves working with teenagers and families and sports and dance and things like that another one also really likes that as well but has a little bit more of a compassion for like binge eating, you know, I personally work with adults really well. So it's so cool to see how different, you know, different, different specialties exist within the eating disorder
0: space. Yeah, for sure. So when you're working with a client, how do you, you know, begin the topic of intuitive eating? And like, how do you start them on that path? Because I think for a lot of people, it's like, Oh, read the book. But you know, where do you even start? If you don't or you know, if you don't know where to begin? Yes,
1: yeah, this is a great question. So, coming from an eating disorder, going into intuitive eating versus just someone that might have like a disordered relationship with food, going into or dieting, eating, sometimes, yeah, you know, or dieting, sometimes can look a little different. And this is where it's so nuanced and depends completely on the individual in front of you. There's not a like a right and a wrong. But I think that someone is ready for intuitive eating if they can start to have a good connection with body signals, Mm -hmm. because intuitive eating is all about interceptive awareness. Now, at the beginning of intuitive eating journey, a lot of people are not connected. Right, You don't have to have a connection in order to start intuitive eating. However, I think that sometimes more, some eating disorders are a little bit more severe than others in the sense that you might not be able to zone into that interceptive awareness at the very beginning. Right. So it just depends. And it's not to say that there's a right and a wrong, and there's a certain set of guidelines. But I think that if someone starts to try intuitive eating and goes right back into restriction or goes right back into, like, restriction and binging or even purging, like, Mm -hmm. those behaviors are not necessarily going to help that person develop a stronger relationship with intuitive eating they may need to work with a dietitian with a specific meal plan that's perfect and individualized for them, not for anyone else. Right. Yeah. Um but it's, yeah, that's kind of my like stance on even sort of recovery into
0: intuitive eating. Right. I, I think that's a good way to explain that, you know, you might need this in between time where you're still sort of on a meal plan, having sort of strict, you know, this is what you need to do to be weight restored, or to just have a more normal eating schedule. Um, because y- you can't jump from restricting or binging and purging during your whole life to suddenly being like, yes, I know exactly when I'm hungry, and when I'm full, and when I should eat and when I shouldn't eat. Um, it can be really confusing to people and almost feel like a diet in and of itself.
1: Yes, exactly. In someone with the mindset that's struggling with an eating disorder sometimes isn't ready for all the freedom that comes with intuitive eating. And that's okay to say. And that's why I love incorporating different aspects of intuitive eating into a person's journey with their own eating disorder recovery at a pace that works for them. So we might be going on, you know, few weeks strong of no eating disorder behaviors, like really working on meal planning stuff. And someone that's ready to incorporate intuitive eating might say, well, you know, this food that what I'm supposed to have, I want to change it up. You know, like, what what do I want to do? Like, this doesn't really feel like it's something that is, you know, it's something that I want to do right now. The first part of intuitive eating might be asking them, what are you craving? Yeah. You know, and that to me is usually more like principle number two, like feeling your hunger and, you know, the satisfaction principle too, and kind of like challenging the food police, like that sense, what are you craving? It's kind of all those principles all in one, but just a gentle start to intuitive eating and people can absolutely begin there. It really just depends on where they're coming from.
0: Gotcha. So do you take a different approach with different types of eating disorders to introduce intuitive eating? Like if someone has been, you know, binging um, and that's, they mostly just have binge eating disorder versus someone who has anorexia um, or bulimia?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that eating disorders present in so many different ways. And unfortunately, and so, so said with, you know, a lot of compassion to the DSM because I feel like it has given us guidelines and common language, and that's a great thing. But unfortunately, with the DSM, which is like the official way to diagnose eating disorders, right. it does put people into boxes. Yeah. So I don't necessarily work in different ways regarding intuitive eating with people that have like quote unquote anorexia versus bulimia versus binge disorder, but I may work with intuitive eating depending on someone's motivation for recovery, Mm -hmm. someone's ability to connect with themselves, someone's support system around them, Um, how much access do they have to different food choices, what's their schedule like, what's their lifestyle like, you know, are they ready for challenges, like how much exposure therapy do they want? That's more what I would base my approach on intuitive eating for versus the actual symptoms.
0: Right, okay, so sort of... Where are they like, you know, pre-contemplative, contemplative, contemplative, like motivated, you know, where are they ready to change?
1: Exactly. And also too, how, how, um, how are they experiencing intuitive eating right now? You know, like how Mm. are, like, what do you think intuitive eating is going to do for them? If at (laughs) all. Yeah. What what do they think intuitive eating is going to do for them? Are they excited about it? Are they ready to change? Are they curious about a certain topic? Um, how strong are they in their anti-diet belief system? Yeah. You know, principle number one is sometimes the most important principle that I feel like people come back to over and over and over again. It's not just principle number one is the first principle for a reason and then you forget about it your whole entire journey. I feel like people go back to principle number one all the time. Yeah. Because there's so much of that wrapped up into eating disorders with dieting and trying mm-hmm. to change size and shape for sure.
0: I think a problem, and and maybe you've seen this too, that I have all the time is, you know, people really want to be an intuitive eater and want to learn that sort of freedom and uh, comfort around food, but they can't let go of the idea that a diet will help them or that being thin is better. Like those two things are seem to me to be the last two things to go. So that's something exactly. that that you see
1: yeah no, no, and I see that over and over again. and that's why I feel like for a lot of the intuitive eating principles, not just the first one, it's not just read it, check it off, and move on. yeah, it's constantly building up skills that have to do with every principle because life changes and there's transitions in life and you know one one day we're doing this and the next month we're doing that and completely new life and we have to kind of go back to a lot of the principles and kind of say well what does this mean for us right now at this moment right you know what have we learned about our journey that we can be resilient and build upon skills and keep
0: going so is there it is hard but it's a beautiful journey (laughs) yeah definitely is there um you know a concept that you have a hard time or do you see patients having a hard time grasping and like what do you do to help them get there
1: Yes, I would say the biggest principle for intuitive eating that people have a hard time with, in my opinion, in my experience as a clinician, is the body respect principle. Right. Respecting yeah. your body. Um, I don't think that it's a size and shape dependent principle, although I absolutely do think that because of our society and the oppression that people have in larger bodies, social justice issues absolutely exist and people are treated Unfairly different, you know, in larger bodies. Definitely, we always have to talk about. But I do see people of all different sizes and shapes going through a difficult time with respecting their body because I feel like people throw so much into body image. They throw all of their problems in their life in terms of relationships, connections, job, satisfaction, pleasure. Yeah. You know, movement. Like they throw it all into well. I just don't like my body. I don't appreciate my body. I can't respect my body. My body is the problem. And this is where I feel like no matter who you are, you've probably had body images in your life, and that's where we have to dig down and kind of work on the body respect piece, and I think it's really hard for a lot of people. But just not to say that it's not impossible, because I've absolutely seen so many recovery stories and beautiful stories of people moving out of that space and starting to respect their body again. But I do think that that's the hardest principle sometimes for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think even, you know, people who have been on the path for a long time can fall back and be like, Oh, if I was only, you know, you know, thinner in some way or whatever it is in some way, then my problems would be better. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and sometimes it is so hard to actually say to someone, well, if you were thinner, you still might have that problem. You know, that's not what people people want to hear. But I also think that when we can kind of confront it head on, Mm -hmm. it it allows for change to happen. And it allows people to, like, take ownership of the fact that they have a problem in their life that, you know, might not be solved by weight loss or changing body shape and size.
0: Right. I remember at one point when I was in therapy, like, telling – my therapist at the time, you know, all of my problems are because of, you know, that I, I weighed too much or whatever it was. And she's like, Well, you yeah. seem to be talking about like exam stress and family problems <laughs> and all these other things. Like, do you think those would go away if you lost weight? <laughs> and I was just like, Uh, yes. But, right now, uh, I think yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I think is really interesting about intuitive eating is that it kind of has to be, you know, everyone you live with on this journey. Um, do Do you see that as a conflict or a problem with any of your clients if their family or whoever they live with isn't also interested or moving towards being an intuitive eater? Yeah.
1: Well, so I believe that when someone in a family system has an eating disorder I do believe that every part of the family needs to be involved in treatment.
0: Definitely, yeah. And
1: it's a pretty strong, yeah, a pretty strong belief system of mine. Just because I've worked so well with so many different families that have truly recovered and are in a better place because of the family work that they have done.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I've also worked with some families that have just like kind of swept it under the rug, and for various reasons. Like I never blame anybody or shame anyone for their eating disorder journey but there are some families out there that you know just kind of don't want to deal with it and I honestly think that that's a coping skill for that family that is kind of working at the time and I just see things getting worse and worse and worse so I do believe that if someone is moving towards intuitive eating that the whole family should be involved now it doesn't mean to say that like everyone has to be on board percent and everyone is doing everything right because that's a very unrealistic
0: picture. It's not going to happen, yeah. Is, yeah,
1: but I think that whoever the client is in the family needs to be vocal about the support system around them, what's working for them, what's not working for them, and thinking about, you know, the different parts of that client that have struggled with eating disorder stuff and what the struggle has meant. Like, what's the foundation underneath the eating disorder? Sometimes it's diet culture, sometimes it's you know, an addiction system, sometimes it's trauma, sometimes it's stress, sometimes mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, sometimes it's biological, you know, genetic. Yeah. So it's yep. absolutely I you know, think for whatever the reason that someone is struggling with an eating disorder, that those reasons are attended to within the family system. And it, of course it depends. As someone ages out of a family system, it looks a little bit different. You know, an 11, 12, 13-year-old, that treatment is going to look very different than like a 16, 17, year old It's going to look very different than like 25-year-old. Right. It's going to look very different than like a 35-year-old, 45-year-old. And trust me, I've had, you know, eating disorders range from literally like 6 to 86. Right. So it really doesn't depend on what age you are. It just looks different depending on where you're at with your Yeah.
0: Family. And the family is different, right? Like if you're the parent versus the child versus, you know, you only have your spouse around, there's no kids, um, it can be really different.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And and you have to almost figure out what works for your family because one answer for one family is going to be completely different than another answer for another family. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah. You know, everyone is different and everyone has their own path. And just like we celebrate all different cultures and all different holidays and things like that, we have to figure out what works for that individual family.
0: Right. So how do you talk to someone or how would you advise someone to talk to their family or friend who is kind of resistant to the idea of intuitive eating? Um, but you know, they need them to kind of be on board or shut that part down while they're around them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So if someone is out there struggling, I would say if you can use your healthcare team or your, your treatment team mm-hmm. to your ability. I would absolutely do so because this is the real life stuff that I think is so important yeah. to practice. You know, like we're, like when you go to your appointments, of course we're going to be talking about troubleshooting things. Of course we're going to be talking about typical days and what's going on. But like even role modeling, <laughs> role, yeah, playing role playing, a conversation between a best friend is so important. And I've absolutely helped clients before do those types of real life strategies. So I would say you can bring A family member or friend to a session. I think that's a great strategy. Yeah, that's awesome for a lot of people. If you can role play, you know what you would say with a therapist or a dietitian. I think that that's also great. Um, But I think just sticking up for what is going to help you, through the client, sticking up for what's going to help you in the moment. So if a friend is talking about dieting or losing weight, just being very honest and say you know what, like, right now I'm just not in a place where that's helpful for me to hear.
0: Yeah. Can we talk
1: about something else? Yeah. You know, and changing the subject. Um, depends on how much of an activist you want to be, and, and no matter what level of activism, is totally mm-hmm. okay. I don't want to feel like they have to do things, but even saying something along the lines of, like, well, you know, the dieting doesn't really work, yeah. or you know, dieting have just cause problems," You know, I don't want that for you and your life. I care so much about you. And thinking just how you can make the conversation go as smooth as it possibly can without like offending someone else. So they don't have to be defensive. I think it's a good strategy for sticking up for your boundaries. But again, getting mean if you need to and sticking up for yourself, no matter what emotion you have, is also totally okay. Right. Uh, it just depends on what you need in the moment.
0: Yeah. I think like that is such a just common problem. People write into me all the time who listen to the podcast and they're like, I'm totally with you on this, you know, health at every size thing or intuitive eating or whatever the topic is. But, you know, my friends or family aren't and it's driving me nuts or I don't know what to say. Um, And I think people just have a really hard time, you know, not making it a fight, (laughs) but also sticking up for themselves. Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, so I was having a really great conversation today with a client about boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that boundaries are so important. And you have the right to feel and feel as best you possibly can with your stuff. But at the same time, you're not responsible for other people's actions. Like right. they have their own actions and their own emotions and their own boundaries. So all we can really control is ourselves in those situations. So I use the example. I feel do if anyone's out there that, you know, Verizon employee or optimum employee or all piece employee because i feel like i'm going to sound like i don't respect them but i feel like school companies knock on my door all the time asking me to switch
0: yes like, all the time
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what i say as an example of a boundary is that you know my house doesn't have a sign that says like you can't knock on the door you know? right it's, it's not illegal <laughs> at least like without this sign it's probably to like, do not disturb or do not knock Campaign. That's where I live, but but our house doesn't have it. So that employee has every right to knock on my door. It is my decision, even if it annoys me. It's their right. You know, it's my decision to open the door. It's my decision on how long of a conversation I want to have. It's my decision whether or not I just like not answer the door. You know, Mm -hmm. or ignore the person, or it's my decision to listen to their spiel for twenty minutes and waste twenty minutes of my time. You know, right. know, it's yeah. my decision. So I cannot control the other actions of people around me. All I can control is the boundary that I set up for myself. And that's what I try to teach my clients as well.
0: Yeah, that's an awesome way to put it. Because I think a lot of us have gotten really good at like hanging up on the telemarketer. <laughs> but we need to expand <laughs> yeah. that to like other realms. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Why can't, why can't? I mean, I know it's going to sound a little mean out there, but... If you're having a problem with a friend or a family member and you've just, you know, gone there so many times with them and they just don't get it, like, you can't hang up on them. They might get defensive and argumentative, but it's your boundary to have people in your life at certain times that that you want to have in your life. And it's your job, too, and it's your boundary to also say no. To listening to some of that stuff like you have
0: every right to say no if it's not going to be helpful for you right awesome I just have like a few more questions but my yes. my next one is you know when can you call yourself an intuitive eater because I think a lot of people you know they start and they're like I'm working on it but when can you actually call yourself an intuitive eater oh,
1: that is such a good question I love that question I think it's kind of the difference between I think it's a similar example with the difference between recovery and recovered period. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about that question before? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's so, it's, there's so many nuances of it. And I think that for somebody that's working on intuitive eating, saying that you're an intuitive eater and you're still messing up, I think that you can absolutely call yourself an intuitive eater because intuitive eating, there really is no messing up, you know, like you obviously learn from experiences just like in recovery, you always learn from experiences too, and you're still in recovery. And I don't know. That's a really good question. I think for everyone it's gonna be different. But I do think that at least for me, there was a shift of in recovery to recovered. Definitely. Experience. Yeah. And yeah, and I also think too with my journey intuitive eating and for a lot of clients too, it's like I'm working on intuitive eating, and then there's a subtle a subtle shift into I'm an intuitive eater. And I don't know if I can give any clinical definition yeah. of that, trip, but I do think it's a gut feeling.
0: I think it's and, almost a confidence also, thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny, because intuitive eating is so rooted in interceptive awareness, mm-hmm. I feel like the answer is that if you feel like you're an intuitive eater, <laughs> you're totally an intuitive eater. Yeah. And no one is going to tell you, that there's like a specific definition because it's really up to you to have that awareness of your own journey.
0: Right. And I think maybe one, one thing I've thought about with, you know, when can you decide if you're an intuitive eater is if it's in other parts of your life too, right? Like you're not only like listening to your body in terms of food, but maybe exercise and sleep and, and other elements of your lifestyle.
1: Exactly. So I have Elise Rush.
0: Yeah, I heard her say that.
1: Yes. And she said it so beautifully. She said something along the lines, this is not a direct quote, but she said something along the lines of like, someday, I want to write a book called intuitive living. Yeah. Because there's so many aspects of intuitive eating that go into other parts of people's lives Mm -hmm. and their whole entire life. Is changed at times with intuitive eating because you see it starts with the food, but then it breaks it out into so many areas. Yeah. So I really appreciated that comment.
0: Yeah, that was amazing. Um, awesome. Well, my last question before I ask you to tell people where to find you is what's your favorite food? Oh,
1: my favorite food? I will, my, my classic answer to this question is always <laughs> ice cream. Yeah. However, today, it is 30 degrees. I know. And <laughs> like sleeting.
0: Yeah. At least here. It
1: is, so we're recording in December. 30 degrees. Uh, it's sleeting. It's like so cold. So I don't know if ice cream is going to be the answer today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite like winter food?
1: <laughs> I know. But I feel like it's always some sort of dessert. Like mm-hmm. I really love dessert a lot. And I love different kinds of dessert. And I love baking. And I love... Just the feeling of celebrating with dessert, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, like definitely. the fact that all birthdays come with cake, and all barbecues, you know, end with dessert. Like like holidays come with cookies. I celebrate Christmas, so Christmas comes with cookies. You yeah, know? I just the fact that that dessert is always such an important role in a lot of celebrations. So I have to say, like that's my overall answer. Usually yeah, just like, the whole category. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome.
0: I know. Well, where can any of my listeners find you?
1: Yes, so I am over in Nyack, New York. I have a group private practice called Eat with Knowledge. It's right across the Throgs Bridge, yeah, <laughs> um, in Rockland County, which is really great. So, if you are like local to my area and you want to, you know, go through nutrition counseling, we are a group private practice. We'd be happy to see you. But for any professional out there, I'm so excited that I also have another business called student Private Practice which is all about how to build a weight-inclusive, intuitive eating private practice. So I have a podcast called Pursuing Private Practice. Um, my website is pursuingprivatepractice.com. Um, and I also do business coaching and supervision for other dietitians. So I'm involved in that aspect of helping other people grow their professional career to really make an impact in the world.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been really You're great. You're welcome, to talk anytime. If you made it this far, please go give me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever listening app you use. Um, the reviews really help other listeners find the show. So if you can do that today and every episode, that would be great. Um, also, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please send them to me at worth, W-E-R-T-H, your while, nutrition at gmail.com and check out my Instagram and blog at while. Again, I hope you have a wonderful start to 2020 and can't wait to have you here next year to go deeper with Life with Ed.